When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is an apostrophe podcast production. regret to inform you the rejection podcast we had no encouragement everyone told us it was terrible while we were making it even when it first came out people told us it was terrible eleanor bergstein When Eleanor Bergstein was a teenager, she had a nickname, Baby. The Brooklyn-born screenwriter spent her high school summers with her family at a luxury resort in the Catskill Mountains. It was the 50s, the Catskills' heyday, when air conditioning was as ubiquitous as sunscreen and Jewish New Yorkers would load up their Ford Country Squires and flock to one of the legendary getaways over 500 hotels and lodges. There was musical theater, shuffleboard, lakes, pools, dance lessons, and bottomless Tom Collins. An invariable playground for the upwardly mobile. But just below the surface lurked something quite different. Bergstein and her friends would sneak away from their parents to have their own brand of fun, partaking in a basement sensation they called dirty dancing. It was a street style of dance that would make grandma upstairs clutch her pearls. A mix of the mambo, salsa, and the tango, sprinkled with a little good old-fashioned gyrating, 
like Elvis, but in pairs. Bergstein was a natural, later telling the New York Times she'd won several Dirty Dancing trophies in her day that would turn your hands green if you touched them. She was a self-proclaimed teenage mambo queen. It was the time of her life. Years later, Bergstein became a novelist and was living in New York City, when one day she got a phone call. It was a documentary filmmaker named Claudia Weil. Weil had read Bergstein's latest book and wondered if she'd be interested in writing a short film script for an educational television channel. Bergstein was hesitant. Screenwriting wasn't her thing. But the money was decent, so she came up with four conditions. One, it would have to be between books. Two, she would have to get paid in advance. Three, there would have to be a high probability of it getting produced. And four, she would have to be involved in every stage of production, from casting to lighting. Even Bergstein herself thought the requests were completely unreasonable. But every single one was granted. So she started writing. When Bergstein finished the script, she was thrilled. Screenwriting came to her more easily than she had anticipated. In fact, she took great pleasure in it. Then, Weil managed to land a deal with 20th Century Fox. And suddenly, their little educational film was going to be turned into a Hollywood motion picture. Bergstein wasn't happy. You'd think this would be a writer's dream come true. But actually, Bergstein wanted nothing to do with Hollywood. It was beneath her. She was a serious novelist. But with a little more arm-twisting by Weil, she gave in. They called the film It's My Turn and cast Jill Clayburgh and Michael Douglas as the leads. Huge actors for a writer's debut film. At one point in the story, the couple dirty danced, a scene that was very personal to Bergstein. But at the last minute, the scene was cut. There would be no gyrating for Michael Douglas. The film achieved modest success, and Bergstein was amazed at how much she had enjoyed the process. But she never forgot that deleted scene, and it gave her a thought. One day, she would write a movie that had dirty dancing so intrinsically embedded into the storyline, it would be impossible to remove. In her 20s, Bergstein had gone on a double date with a woman named Linda Gottlieb. They didn't know each other, but the men across the table were roommates. Neither of the men left an impression on Bergstein or Gottlieb that night, but the women left an impression on each other. Years down the line, Bergstein officially pivoted from novelist to screenwriter, and a big part of her job became approaching producers with script ideas. She had heard through the grapevine that Gottlieb was a producer now who had landed a deal with MGM and was looking for movie ideas. So the two reunited for lunch. Aside from their unsuccessful double date, the pair were virtual strangers. But as they broke bread, Bergstein proceeded to tell Gottlieb all about her latest script idea. She said it was about two sisters who vacationed with their family to the Catskills in the 60s. 
one is a dancer and one isn't, and there would be Latin music. It didn't interest Gottlieb at all. In fact, she thought, well, this is a wasted lunch. So, as she tells the story in the Netflix series, The Movies That Made Us, Gottlieb changed the subject and asked Bergstein to tell her a little bit more about her own life, her background. Bergstein told her about growing up in Brooklyn with her father, who was a doctor, her family trips to the Borscht Belt, the fact she was nicknamed Baby, and that she loved to dance. Adding that, in fact, throughout her teen years, she used to dirty dance with the boys from the wrong side of the tracks. Gottlieb dropped her fork. She looked at Bergstein and said, that's a million-dollar title. Bergstein said, what is? She said, dirty dancing. That very lunch, the two women decided to become partners, and Bergstein started working on a script. It would incorporate several aspects of her upbringing, including her political views. The story took place in 1963, when Martin Luther King had a dream, the Beatles had yet to cross the pond, and JFK was alive and well. A wealthy Jewish mother, doctor father, and two daughters, one called Baby, traveled to Kellerman's Resort in the Catskills for the summer. A retreat complete with golf, rowboats, and dance lessons by attractive instructors. But it also housed a secret. After dark, the young resort employees would dirty dance in smoky staff quarters to take the edge off after long days of catering to the upper class. And as it turned out, one of the waiters had gotten the female dance instructor pregnant, and she seeks an illegal abortion. Baby steps in to help the girl and takes her place in the resort's dance showcase, along with the lead male dancer, Johnny Castle. He's older, handsome, aloof, rebellious. Everything Baby's been warned against. But she defies her father and falls for him anyway. That summer, she goes from baby to Francis, a true coming-of-age story. But as Vox later put it, it underscored a coming-of-age for America as well, which later that year would change irreversibly. Dirty Dancing was a love story with a dash of Bergstein, a dash of politics, and a whole lot of electricity. dancer herself, Bergstein wrote the choreography into the script, with each move carefully selected, 60 pages worth to be exact. But she wasn't sure if that was customary. She'd never written a dance script before. Maybe 60 pages was over the top and unprofessional. So she decided to contact a fellow writer, someone who had written a dance movie before, and ask for their advice. Through a few contacts, she managed to get her hands on the phone number of one of the writers of Saturday Night Fever, and she nervously called. When he answered the phone, she told him he probably didn't know who she was, but that she was a fellow screenwriter within the musical genre who admired his work, with a quick question about writing dance scenes into scripts, if he had a moment. He curtly said, who is this again? So she timidly explained further that she was a writer seeking guidance to avoid looking overbearing to the cast and crew. He paused, then said, I don't have time for somebody like you, and slammed down the phone. 
Bergstein was mortified. She said she felt ridiculous. Maybe he was right. She was a nobody who was in over her head. She climbed into bed, slid under the covers, and cried. When she eventually emerged, Bergstein passed her script onto Gottlieb, choreography and all. Gottlieb loved it and took it straight to the president of MGM. MGM had major success producing dance films over the years, with movies like Singin' in the Rain and Fame. So Gottlieb felt confident their script would be well-received. And guess what? She was right. MGM president Frank Yablons instantly fell in love with the story, and Dirty Dancing was a go. Gottlieb and Bergstein were over the moon. But the very next day, Yablons was fired. The new regime wanted nothing to do with Gottlieb and nothing to do with her deal. And Dirty Dancing made its way into a dirty dumpster. Gottlieb was devastated. Not only was this project dead in the water, but all her other projects with MGM as well. The studio informed her that the rights to the Dirty Dancing script now fell into her hands for one year. Gottlieb had exactly 365 days to get it made or she'd lose control and the rights would revert back to MGM. It was time to find a new studio. So Gottlieb and Bergstein put on their dancing shoes and got to work. The first studio Gottlieb contacted was Paramount. They turned it down immediately. So she called every other movie studio on the West Coast and was rejected over and over and over again. The bigwigs all echoed the same sentiment. Dirty Dancing was too small, too soft, and too girly. Hollywood was a boys' club, and a female writer-producer duo was rare, not to mention they were selling a female coming-of-age story with a female-driven political subplot. Bergstein was frustrated, so she decided to go through her old 45s and make cassette tapes to add to the script packages, featuring some of her favorite songs of the 60s. She hoped maybe the executives would pop it in while they read the script, or at least listen when they drove home at the end of the day. And maybe, just maybe, they'd be charmed. They heard nothing back. Then, a single response from an executive at a major studio. Exciting. When they opened the letter, it said he wasn't interested in the movie because kids wouldn't like the music. But he wondered if they could send him another tape. He had worn his out. Gottlieb and Bergstein decided to switch gears. If major studios weren't biting, there was always the little guy. So they started sending the script to indie movie studios. They got five rejection letters, then 10, then 20, then 30, then 43. Bergstein said everybody hated it. Gottlieb said their movie was turned down by anyone who could say the word no. The clock was ticking on the project, and the pair was getting desperate. Little did they know, their script had made its way onto a truck that was headed across the country to Stamford, Connecticut.
If you listen to our earlier episode titled Rejecting Pretty Woman, you'll remember a little studio called Vestron Pictures. Before it was called Vestron Pictures, it was Vestron Video. They were a VHS distribution company back when at-home movies were a novelty. But as major studios realized VHS was here to stay, they began distributing their movies themselves, leaving Vestron in the dust. So to stay afloat, Vestron decided to start producing films of their own. And because they were nobodies in the movie business, nobody was sending them scripts. So the way they got ideas was to sift through all the major studios' reject scripts. In The Movies That Made Us, then Vestron head of production Mitchell Canold said their headquarters in Connecticut quite literally had dump trucks unload thousands of scripts into the dumpster outside their building. Canold would then spend hours, days, and months reading through them all, hoping to spot a diamond in the rough. When one day, he came across a title that piqued his interest, Dirty Dancing. So he turned the page. Like Bergstein, Canold had spent many a summer in the Catskills with his family. So he got all Bergstein's references and dug the soundtrack. He said the story spoke to a formative period of his life for which he was very fond. He laughed, he cried, he danced. He needed to make this movie. Back in the Golden State, Gottlieb was still pounding the pavement when the phone rang. It was Canold. He said he loved the script and wanted to make Dirty Dancing Vestron's very first feature film. He said they could make it, show it in theaters for a week, then push it straight to video. Gottlieb thought it was a joke. Vestron was a VHS distributor. What did they know about production? But she was running out of time. And on the other end of the line was someone saying they'd give her a shot. So Gottlieb threw caution to the wind and said, okay, let's do this. Gottlieb knew that with a small studio, the movie would have to have a small budget. So she took a meeting with Vestron and told them the lowest she could possibly go was $8 million. And even then, it would be painfully tight. But the executives weren't there to negotiate. They gave her $5 million, adding that if the chairman saw so much as a decimal point after the five, he would pull the plug. For any film, a budget that low is almost unreasonable. But for Dirty Dancing, it was a death sentence. Because Bergstein had her heart set on an elaborate soundtrack, featuring songs like The Ronettes' Be My Baby, as well as original music. And as anyone in the entertainment industry will tell you, songs are pricey. Almost their entire budget would have to go towards securing music rights. The rest of the production would have to be done on a dime. Shortly afterward, they found a director who was interested in doing the film, Emil Ardolino. He'd read the script while on jury duty one afternoon, and it instantly lifted his spirits. Ardolino had never directed a full-length motion picture, but he had an extensive background in dance and an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature about dancing. He knew how to shoot dance scenes, so they rolled with it. Next, they scouted locations. 
The Catskill Mountains still had several standing resorts, but the cost of renting one out in peak season was wildly outside their budget. So they'd have to look elsewhere. They came across a rustic lodge in Southwest Virginia they could afford to rent for two weeks only in September. It had beautiful stone buildings, a massive wooden gazebo, and of course, a lake. There was only one problem. By the end of September, the leaves were already starting to change color, so they'd have to spray paint them green. Hold that thought. We'll be right back. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Gottlieb and Bergstein had the studio, the crew, and the location. The only missing piece was the cast. Vestron had a clear vision for the role of baby, Pia Zadora. Zadora was a 33-year-old blonde bombshell who had been a point of controversy in the early 80s. She had starred in a movie called Butterfly that earned her very conflicting accolades. A Golden Globe Award for New Star of the Year and a Golden Raspberry Award, a ceremony honoring the year's cinematic underachievements for Worst New Star. Gottlieb said Zadora was the worst possible choice for the part. Baby wasn't a bombshell. She was meant to be, well, quite average. So they put out a casting call. Dozens of auditions later, the pair was completely underwhelmed despite the frontrunners including Sarah Jessica Parker and Winona Ryder. 
But Bergstein had her own vision for baby. She wanted a girl who looked kind of like she did when she was 18. Petite, with curly brown hair and an air of innocence. Then, in walked a young woman named Jennifer Gray. She was known almost exclusively for the role of Ferris Bueller's cynical older sister, Jeannie, and had very little dancing experience. But dance was in her DNA. Jennifer's father, Joel Gray, was an Oscar, Golden Globe, Grammy, and Tony Award winner, known best for his role in the musical Cabaret. And as he ushered his daughter into the audition room, she turned back toward him and said, Wish me luck, Daddy. And Gottlieb and Bergstein fell in love. For her dance partner, however, it was a little more tricky. As Bergstein tells it, she wanted Johnny Castle to have hooded eyelids. She envisioned a man who looked dangerous, with hungry eyes. So she flipped through dozens of headshots until she found someone with the exact gaze she had imagined. He was an unknown named Patrick Swayze. But when she flipped over his resume under notes, it clearly stated, no dancing. So Bergstein said, bye-bye Swayze. It was disappointing, but the show must go on. They auditioned several other actors for the part, including Benicio Del Toro and Billy Zane. But their dirty dancing skills left something to be desired. Bergstein said they were probably wonderful dancers at their bar mitzvahs. That's when the director piped up and said they should really reconsider Patrick Swayze because he's an incredible dancer. Bergstein and Gottlieb were confused. The only mention of dancing on his resume was preceded by the word no. But as it turned out, Swayze was an extremely accomplished ballerino. His mother was a dance instructor and he attended the prestigious Joffrey Ballet School. He became the principal dancer at a ballet company and even performed on Broadway. The reason he had specified no dancing on his resume was because he had a bad knee from an old football injury and dancing had become too challenging. The very reason he had transitioned to acting in the first place. But Bergstein persuaded Swayze to audition anyway, and they put him in a room with Jennifer Grey. Grey didn't exactly swoon. In fact, she didn't like his attitude. But their dirty dancing chemistry was perfection. Bergstein told Swayze, I didn't know you existed when I wrote this film, but if you decide not to do it, it will be very hard for me to imagine going on and making it without you. So it was settled. Swayze would push through his knee injury, and Gray would push through her dislike for him. And in September of 1986, the cast and crew made their way to the faux Catskills in Virginia. Shooting the film on a next-to-zero-dollar budget was as challenging as one would imagine. Bergstein said she went around feeding the extras peanut butter and crackers because they couldn't afford catering. They were afraid the lodge owners were going to think Dirty Dancing was an X-rated movie and kick them out, so they called it Dancing Film instead throughout the entire shooting process. The lake where Baby and Johnny practiced their final lift was freezing cold. The director had to stick to wide shots only because their blue lips were a dead giveaway. 
It was almost October after all. Then strange things started happening. While shooting the scene where Johnny teaches baby how to balance on a fallen log, he fell and got hurt. There was also flooding at the lodge, then a wasp infestation, and a few crew members ended up with broken extremities. Bergstein wondered if they were cursed, but they persevered. And soon it came time to shoot the final scene. In the script, Bergstein had penned an epic finale with a major dance number, but they had no song. The film's music producer was scrambling to find a track to punctuate the final scene, but wasn't having any luck. He had approached dozens of songwriters who submitted dozens of cassette tapes, but nothing felt right. He peered into the box, and there was one tape left to listen to. It was called, I've Had the Time of My Life. So he popped it into the cassette player. It was a duet. The brief was to write a romantic song that was seven minutes long for an indie flick called Dirty Dancing. The songwriters wondered if it was for the background of a bad porno movie, but a job's a job, and boy did they deliver. Everyone loved it. The final scene was shot to the original cassette demo, but the producer wanted a more established singer to perform the final track. So they approached Donna Summer. Summer turned it down. She too didn't like the movie's title. Lionel Richie and Daryl Hall also rejected the tune. But in the end, after months of convincing, they managed to land two greats, Bill Medley and Jennifer Warnes. The director put together a rough cut of the movie, but the studio wanted a second opinion. As Vestron was brand new, they decided to bring in someone with years of Hollywood experience to give them some notes. So, as the Vestron head of production tells it, they found someone who knew someone who knew someone who knew a man named Aaron Russo. Russo was a renowned film producer behind hit movies like Trading Places. So they brought him over to Vestron HQ. And as he watched the movie, Vestron executives watched him in terror. When the credits rolled, Russo stood up, turned to the chairman and simply said, burn the negatives and collect the insurance, then walked out. Vestron started to panic and wondered if they should skip the cinema altogether and dump the project straight to VHS to be forever hidden on shelves in the backs of video stores. The studio's president said he thought the release was foolhardy and playing it fast and loose with the company's own money. Bergstein said Vestron worried it was, quote, the biggest piece of junk in the world and just hoped she and Gottlieb wouldn't be too humiliated when it came out. Gray wondered if they'd just spent months on a movie no one would ever see. But the studio figured after spending $5 million on it, they should at least give it one weekend. But before they edited the final cut, they put together a test screening. It didn't do well. 40% of the audience didn't even understand that there was an abortion underpinning the entire movie. And neither did Clearasil. 
Despite the speed bumps, Bestron had miraculously managed to land the movie a national sponsor in Clearasil Acne Cream. The movie had received a PG-13 rating, and the brand decided to really lean into the 13. That is, until they too fully digested the film's controversial themes. Clearasil threatened to pull their sponsorship, and even offered to pay Bergstein extra to rewrite the abortion out of the plotline. But she refused. Bergstein said without the abortion, there was no believable reason for any of the events that followed. It was also a matter of political principle. And just like that, Dirty Dancing lost its national sponsor. On August 21st, 1987, it was opening weekend. Bergstein and Gottlieb held their breath, and the team at Vestron huddled at their studio in Connecticut, anxiously awaiting the numbers. By its second day, Dirty Dancing brought in $4 million. The next weekend, it doubled. And suddenly, the whole country was abuzz about Patrick Swayze and this steamy new dance movie. Bestron couldn't believe it. The New York Times called, looking to write an article about Bergstein and the film. The brand new Oprah Winfrey show called, inviting Dirty Dancing's choreographer onto the show. The numbers kept going up and up. People were going to see the film multiple times. The soundtrack topped the Billboard charts. I've Had the Time of My Life was nominated for a Grammy and won the Oscar and Golden Globe for Best Original Song. Swayze and Gray became instant megastars, and Bergstein and Gottlieb solidified their places in Hollywood as the powerhouse duo behind one of the most iconic cult classic movies of all time, even 43 rejection letters and 33 years later. It's hard to say exactly what's made Dirty Dancing so enduring. Maybe it was the 60s nostalgia or Baby's perfectly encapsulated youthful naivete. Maybe it was Baby and Johnny's undeniable chemistry, Swayze's eyelids, the music, the dancing, or the teen rebellion. Maybe no one will ever know for sure, not even the writer herself. But one thing was certain. Though she may have been a woman working with a female producer who wrote a story from a woman's perspective featuring controversial women's issues tasked with pitching her story to a bona fide boys club, Bergstein persevered and emerged in the history books because no one puts baby in the corner. negative collect the insurance this movie only exists because of the persistence of two women the number of rejections Gottlieb and Bergstein had to overcome was unrelenting but this story is so inspiring because despite the obstacles Bergstein and Gottlieb still managed to find tiny victories they found an independent film company that was desperate for a script a tiny victory 
The casting of Patrick Swayze was a tiny victory because Swayze's ballet background taught him how to partner. The male-female duet is the cornerstone of ballet. The bulk of other dance films like Saturday Night Fever, Flashdance, and Footloose were not focused on partner dancing. Watch Swayze in the dance sequences. His performance is amazing. When Jennifer Grey walked into the audition with no dancing experience, it was a tiny victory. The scenes of Swayze's character trying to teach a frustrated baby how to dance, those are real outtakes. The last cassette at the bottom of the box that just happened to contain an Oscar-winning song, yet another tiny victory. In so many of our We Regret to Inform You stories, the rejections are rarely because the material is bad or the creators are untalented. It's because the project hasn't fallen into the right hands yet. Sometimes that search requires 43 door slams. And then you can be saved by something as unlikely, as improbable, as implausible as a dump truck. When screenwriter Eleanor Bergstein was so brutally rebuffed by the Saturday Night Fever screenwriter, she made a promise to herself. She would always help other writers, always take their calls. She made it a point to send the elevator back down. When Linda Gottlieb co-wrote a book titled When Smart People Fail, Rebuilding Yourself for Success, Forbes magazine said it was a must-read for those who need to understand how setbacks can be made into stepping stones to the top. Bergstein has said that when you're discouraged, the key is to pick yourself up off the floor again and again and again. Two steps forward, one step back. It's not a bad dance move. And it has paid off for Bergstein and Gottlieb. To this day, they still make millions of dollars a year from dirty dancing. And the writers of the song, I've Had the Time of My Life, make what people in the biz call mailbox money. They get regular royalty checks in the mail 33 years later. But maybe the most enduring legacy of the film that nobody wanted can be found in its audience. There is a 100-plus club. It is made up of people who have seen Dirty Dancing more than 100 times in theaters. Never, ever give up. Dirty Dancing, most popular video rental, 1988. First movie in history to sell over 1 million videos. Total box office earnings, 215 million. Soundtrack weeks at number 1, 18. Soundtrack copies sold, 11 million. Look spaghetti arms. This is my dance space, this is your dance space. I don't go into yours, you don't go into mine. The Rejection Podcast is an apostrophe podcast production and is recorded in an Airstream mobile recording studio. This episode is hosted and written by me, Sydney O'Reilly. Research, Allison Pinches. We regret to inform you that this series is produced by Debbie O'Reilly. Engineer, Keith Oman. Director, Callie O'Reilly. 
Theme music by Ian Lefevre and Ari Posner. Major sources for this episode are listed in the show notes on our website, apostrophepodcasts.ca slash rejection. Follow us on social at apostrophepod. If you're interested in advertising on our show, we like you. Contact us through our site. This series is executive produced by Terry O'Reilly. See you next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.